Well, good morning to you. We officially wrapped up Galatians, and we've got a series that we want to walk through with you. Um, and I'll get the title slide. Oh, it's up there. Expecting the Unexpected. That's really what the Christmas story is packed with. I mean, there's all these scenes, and, and yet it's so familiar to us as Christians. We see it on Christmas cards. We, we hear it on TV. We get it on the radio. We get it at church, the Christmas story, over and over again. But what Brent and I, when we were thinking about the series, we were thinking there's so many spots where people who weren't expecting the unexpected missed big things, like the Messiah. That's a big thing to miss. And so what we want to do is start to unpack the story and um, maybe tear away at some of its familiarity in a way that brings you into a closer, clearer relationship with the Lord. When I was a kid, uh, the Christmas memory I have still as a 56-year-old guy that's clearest is, was uh, at first glance uh, a hard Christmas. And what had happened was my dad had surgery. They fused some discs together. And um, it was back in a day where you didn't have salaries. You get paid by the hour. And so if you weren't working, you didn't have any money. And we were poor. I didn't realize that until my mom sent me to the store. And instead of giving me money, she gave me these papers, I thought. And it's kind of weird. I said, is this going to work out? And, and then I realized when I gave those things to the cash register lady at the store, she kind of looked at me in a funny way, and I started putting two and two together and realized, oh, we must really be poor. And it happens right around the holidays. So as a kid, you know, when you're going to school, what is everyone talking about as Christmas draws near? What are they talking about, people? You know, what are you going to get for Christmas? All this stuff. And so, you know, I kind of found myself just pulling away and getting quieter and, and just... Uh, Heavier. So the fact that I remember this Christmas now as the most positive is a little miraculous in and of itself. But what happened was, I mean, there's my dad. We don't have money, so you, you can't get presents, and we couldn't even afford a Christmas tree. My mom said, you know what? We, we won't be able to do it this year, so we'll do our best to celebrate, but that's the way it is. And apparently some neighbors heard about this, and and so uh, I remember the night, there was a knock at the door, and there was Mr. Loesch and his family, and they had a big Christmas tree, and they stuck it in there and set it up for us, and we all decorated the tree together. But when you're a kid, and you have a Christmas tree, what are you expecting to go around the Christmas tree? Right, you're back to the present thing, right? And you notice, yeah, there's nothing there. My mom, you know, she struggled with that, She's, and I can remember her saying a number of times in kind of a ashamed way, I'm, I'm sorry, and she, no, it's okay, we understand, we understand. Well, three days before Christmas, all of a sudden my two older sisters and I noticed my mom had placed this small silver box with a bow on it on the bow of the tree. Nothing else, no other presents. So you got three kids that are wondering, what's in that little box? What could it be? So we spent all of our time surmising. And as we, as we pulled closer to the tree, looking at this box, you know, what do kids want to do when they see a present? Shake it, right. So, you know, we're kind of looking at it, and we, we feel like we're treading on holy ground. And all of a sudden we hear from the kitchen in a godlike voice, don't touch the present. 
They're like, okay, you can look at it, but that's it. So we stared at that thing, and we wondered, what's, what's in this small, tiny box? Could it be silver dollars from Grandpa? And it's like, no, no, couldn't be that, be too heavy. Couldn't sit on the branch. My sister said, maybe it's necklaces. And I'm like, necklaces? I don't want a necklace. Yeah, so we, we kind of wondered that we couldn't wait to see what was in this unexpected gift on the tree. So Christmas morning is when we open our presents. So Christmas morning, what are the kids up? They're up at the crack of dawn waiting, chomping at the bit. My dad's door is open so he can hear the conversation. And we beeline for the silver box on the Christmas tree. We're staring at it, just waiting for mom to say, go. So I say, can we open it, mom? Sure, go ahead. So my sister Melanie, she has the firstborn rights to take the Christmas present off the bow. So she does. And you guys, it was like the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant. As it came down, we're just, I can remember, we're just looking at this present with great anticipation. So Mel takes it down. And then my sister, Lisa, second born, gently pulls the bow and opens it up. And then me, the lowly third born, I get to flip the lid, though. That's kind of cool. You know, so we're looking, and everyone's there, and I flip open the lid. And there inside the box is a piece of paper folded up, a small piece of paper. Now our curiosities are just racing. What is it? So Melanie takes a piece of paper and opens it up, and we're all our heads together. Read this note. To my children, I know this is a small box. I used it because there is no box on the planet that could hold all my love for each of my children. I love you, Mom. And we looked at that note and stared at it. And you'd think that as a, as a little elementary school kid and kids, that you'd be like, I want my bike. I want this. I want that. You know, I didn't even get what I... But we, we stared at this note. And there was such a weight of truth to it that our mom, I mean, she, she loves us in a way that there are no boxes that can hold it. And in reality, in order for us to know things, we need boxes because it helps us get our head around it. But there's many things that we can't really completely box up, whether it's my mom's love or, or things like Brendan Fairley. I mean, sometimes I think about putting him in a box. <laughs> you know, stay there. But if I ask you, where's Brendan Fairley from? Where is he from? San Diego. And is it warmer in San Diego? Yes. <laughs> and what do you know about Brendan? What, 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 his, what, what, what did his dad do? He was a pastor. And his grandfather, what did he do? Sure, you know. So you you get all these different things, and it starts to give you something that you can kind of package this guy in. And you go, yeah, I I know him. But do you know everything about him? No. And see, when we're talking about expecting the unexpected, what we've really got to get our heads around is this big question of knowing God. Can you really put God in a box? And you start to realize, well, in order for me to know God, there's certain things that Scripture tells me. God is love. Uh, God's unchanging. God is eternal. All, all those things. And we begin to put this box around there. But 
in many ways, will we ever exhaust the inexhaustible God and get him in a box? But yet, the call to us in knowing God is in fact figuring out how do we do this? How do we get God in a box in an authentic, in real way? Because God wants us to know him. It says in John, this is eternal life, that you might know him. And so we've got this conundrum. How do we do this? How do we really know God in a way that we're starting to get a box around it? But the box isn't limiting. It isn't prohibiting. It isn't ascribing things to God that really aren't God. And so this is the challenge that we face as believers. How do we continue to grow in our belief? One person described this idea, this idea of theology, is faith that seeks understanding. I kind of like that. I mean, if our faith is going to continue to grow, it grows because it gets more and more informed of who God truly is, right? That's, that's really how we do it. Now, the challenge for us as human beings is there's two kinds of theology. One of them that isn't necessarily bad, but can be problematic, and it's the one that we really want to think about, is called embedded theology. And it's like when a tornado blows around, this tornado blew through Kansas, not surprising, and it launched this license plate at a speed where it wedged it, embedded it into this tree. You guys have all seen tornado pictures where like a piece of straw will go into a telephone pole and you go, wow. Yeah, that's, it's embedding it. Now, the reason I use this picture is that embedded theology is this thing. We start to realize that there's places that have been flying around. There's been information, experiences that are flying around. And sometimes we're mindful, other times we're not pictures or things that we think are true about God are getting embedded in our heart and mind. Does that make sense? So many of the people that um, I grew up with were German Catholics. And, um, you know, every once in a while, like I remember one time when we had the uh, northern lights flashing across. Have you guys seen the northern lights? I mean, this was one of these really regal moments where we thought the sky was falling. And we had been out playing night football, and all of a sudden the sky is electric with color. And, of course, the emergent question comes up among these scholarly elementary-aged boys, is there a God? And, you know, there was one particular kid who went to uh, St. Mary's, the the more renowned Catholic church in town, and uh, was very involved in the church. So everyone was kind of looking at him to be the expert. And his answer was telling he said, all I know is God is scary. And he had, what he had picked up somehow in his family or in his neighborhood or in his church someplace was this embedded idea that God is scary. My father, as he was nearing death, became more and more conversant about his own theology. And we talked in particular about an experience he had had when he was 11 years old that was really a formative thing. It embedded a theological picture of God in his heart and mind for years and years and years. This is the story. 11 years old, his father was a tough Illinois State Penitentiary guard. He was a hard 
drinking, mean Irishman. So he would go to the penitentiary and deal with it. It's a maximum security. He would deal with these guys, and it would deal with his own soul, I would imagine. And the way that he would deal with it all is he'd go to the bar after he was done with his shift, and he'd drink himself into oblivion. And then he would come home. And when he would come home, he'd just raise all kinds of cane. And he'd get into it with my grandmother. Sometimes he hit her, and he would terrify my dad and my aunt. 11 years old. This is going on and on and on. I mean, it had been going on all of his life as a, as a little guy. So what does an 11-year-old do? He starts thinking about, I can't fix this. I mean, you realize, you're 11 years old, I can't fix this. Who can? Who can? God, right? So you start negotiating. Well, God, I can't fix my family, but you could. You can do all things. That was his theological picture. So he cuts a deal with God. He says, listen, you fix my family, and I'll be an altar boy. I'll serve you in the church. That's what he knew to do. So he went through all the altar boy training, and he went to serve at the service. The first time he did his acolyte, he light the candles. And at the, at the end of that day of, of his first service, Grandma tells him and my aunt that she's going to divorce Grandpa. She doesn't have any choice. Now think about what's embedding in the theology of this 11-year-old. On one hand, he can understand why. It's absolute chaos. It's craziness. But the thought that embedded deepest in his heart was what he said to me. He said, Mark, for people like you, there's rooms in God's house. There's not room for me. And that thought had embedded in his heart and in his mind for years and years of his life. The most critical points of his life. And now, at the end of his life, we're having to have this discussion about, Dad, that's not true. Well, why? And he's finally willing to risk and open up his heart and to say, Well, why? What else am I supposed to think? I made the deal with God. And I said, But Dad, think about the picture. Would you really want God to be the kind of God that he creates a switch on Grandpa where somehow he just goes like this? Here, I'll flip the switch, and now he's a nice dad. Would you want that? No. What would you want? I'd want him to really love us. Exactly. In order for him to really love you, he really needs free will. God's not necessarily going to go, now love them because it'll only be as good and only last as long as God does this, right? But until the conversation could happen, my dad's embedded theology couldn't really come loose. He needed to look at this, and he needed to see some other things. And I know for him, he used to, he used to wonder, and, and we had a couple of conversations with Tessa, they'd be like, I still can't figure out how you, the pirate, becomes the pastor, and I get kicked out. I don't get it, you know? So his mind, he's, he was stretched all over the place. And you see, here's the deal. As we go through life, and life happens to us, we're trying to make sense of the events and usually trying to make sense of a God behind the events. Right? When it doesn't go the way we thought it would go, when it took longer than we thought it should take, when it happened too suddenly, 
when it, when it happened in ways that we never would have imagined, when life seems to turn upside down, flips over, all those different things. At that moment, you're trying to do theology. You have to be very careful that you pay attention to what's known as embedded theology. And when you pay attention to embedded theology, you're doing the second form of theology, which is deliberative. You're deliberately looking at the picture you have of God. It's saying, is that true? For my dad, his picture was, God kicked some people out of his house. There's no room for them. Now, you theologians, what would you say to that? Is that true? Is the God you know, the God who just loves to kick people out of his house? No. So you'd want to have a conversation with him, right? To say, whoa, let's slow this down. We we want to deliberate. And that's what we need to move towards. Now, in the course of doing this, I ran across this fascinating movie. It's called God in the Box. It's a Jewish fellow who came up with this idea and he and several of his friends traveled around the country asking people two questions. Who is God and what does he look like? And they did it in a box. You'll see in the movie here. I'm just giving you a little bit of a clip. I'd encourage you, you can find it's called God in the Box. You can find it on Vimeo and you can watch it in its entirety. It's, it's kind of fascinating to see the different pieces in these people who are walking down the street are all of a sudden invited to step into this box, they're probably not thinking at all about God, probably haven't thought about God for a long time, and they're having to think and do theology in this box. So take a look at this, and we're going to pick up after this. in there first. Welcome to the box, Heather. What does God mean to me? What does God look like to you? Write it or say it? Or both? To even have an idea of what he looked like, we wouldn't be able to be on this earth. I'd say God is indescribable. I'm atheist. You used to be a firm believer. Not anymore. What about that last guy? You just get a little clip. What did he say? Used to be a firm believer. Then what? Not anymore. Don't you want to open the door and say, can we talk about that? Don't you wonder what happened? What? Did something you see or something happen to you? or What happened? And you realize how important it is that we do this thing called deliberative theology. And we can't do it alone. We have to do it in community, together. We have to have people that we invite in and risk saying, this is maybe what I think, but I'm not quite sure it's right. Would you help me think this through? And we can't go to the other extreme where we just become proponents of groupthink. And we all start to march in sequence. 
Because when we get to the place where the Christmas story enters, a verse that's commonly seen on Christmas cards is going to come up in a moment on the screen. And to the group that the Savior was sent, this group who was waiting for this Savior, this Messiah, the Anointed One, they'd talk about it. It was a regular part of their festivals and their worship and their waiting and their looking. They completely missed the sent one. Completely missed. Look at the verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. How many of you have seen that on a Christmas card? Seen that verse? That's not an unfamiliar verse, is it? How many of you have read the context of that verse? Some of you have. When you read the context of that verse, does it strike you as it's talking about Christmas? If you read the context, you'd say no. Because here's Israel in another embroiled, bitter battle. Their borders are getting crunched. And right in the middle of this discourse to Ahaz, who's not doing a real good job ruling and leading, and all these different parts are shuffling, comes this verse that we typically just go, oh yeah, that makes complete sense to us. That's Jesus. But you see, to the Jew, that makes no sense. It doesn't make sense contextually in the passage. They say, no, 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 no. That's talking about then. It's talking about Ahaz. When the anointed one, the Messiah, comes, here's what the Messiah looks like to the average Jew. Number one, he won't be this weird God-man mix that you Christians believe in. He'll be fully human. Fully human. And not only will he be fully human, he will be a terror as a military leader. He will make King David look like a wimp. He is going to kick butt and take names. Strangely, he will also establish world peace, which seems like, how does that work? Like, let's get along while you hold a bazooka, you know? So they got this picture. Then they say, and another thing, your Jesus can't be the Savior because the the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to come as a direct descendant of David's line. And you say that Jesus' dad is Joseph, and Joseph is not in that line. And so they struggle. And see, as I say that to you, you go, well, Joseph's not his dad. Who's his dad? God. But you see, their embedded theology says, no. See that? And they go on. They talk about this Messiah. He'll be the one who will help the people Obey the law. They'll become fully obedient to our 600-plus laws. They'll re- he will reestablish temple worship. It's going to be an amazing time. And so Jesus doesn't qualify. But they miss the obvious peace that God is sending because their theology, their box, is not big enough. Can you see that? Now, the challenge for us is where have we put up a box that's too narrow? And as we step into the Christmas story, what we want to do in this series is pick up different elements and go, think about this. What does this say about God or you or you and God? 
because Scripture flows along. It's a discourse. It's a sermon. So oftentimes, like passages like this that seem to be out of context are still valid speaking to the Savior being born. Like the first introduction that Jesus is coming happens in an unlikely spot. Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and them and Satan are appearing before God to face judgment for their crime. And God is beginning to elaborate to each one of them the consequence of their sin when he introduces the prophetic hope of the Son coming. Do you know the verse I'm talking about? In Genesis 3, 15, this is what he says as he's talking to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. Now, if you're not expecting the unexpected and you're not watching in Scripture, what does that mean? You can easily race past it and think, no, that's only relevant to Adam and Eve and Satan in that garden moment. It's not relevant to us. But it's the introduction of a prophetic promise. He's coming. And don't you forget it. And so oftentimes, contextually, what happens is God will insert these kinds of promises to see if you're really watching. One of the things that Jesus said often to people is, Let him who has ears hear. And it's another way of him saying, let him who is looking for the unexpected find it. Discover it. And so we need to be very careful because we're putting together a theology. Theo is God. Ology is a study app. We're always doing this. As we go through life, we're trying to make sense of life, but also of life in light of God. Right? You lose a job or your job changes or you lose a loved one or you go through some kind of sickness or illness you can't explain. And in those moments, that's when you're trying to do some of the most important theology and you have to watch out for the embedded parts and you have to lift those up and you have to be deliberate about them with a group of people because your box can become a chokehold. You see, this is why, in my mind, You know, when we started experimenting and looking, how could we do this as a community? This is why we started taking a look at these things that have called huddles, and you may have heard of huddles. I don't care if we call them huddles, cell groups, life groups, small groups, house groups. I don't care. I don't care what we call them. I really don't. I just care that we do them. That's what I care. I, I, I... We can't do the kind of theological work that we have to do in the course of a lifetime without other people coming in and establishing the relationship where you feel safety and trust, where you can say, here's what I'm really thinking. And not be ganged up on or not be ostracized or or not be hung or tarred and feathered or stoned or any of those crazy things where you can really just put it out there. And ladies and gentlemen, as a pastor of 32 years, I ache, ache from the deepest part of me to see the body of Christ do this. I ache. When I was in seminary, I had a taste. We were thrown into these groups. We didn't know each other. There were seven in a group. 
And we were called theological reflection groups. So I was like, la, 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 you know. Where are you going? We're going to theologically reflect. And we had our first meeting, and it was okay. It was a little awkward. We were kind of learning the ground rules. You know, we're not there to preach at one another, but we're there to support one another. And this idea of discovering and informing our faith in, in a way that understanding unfolds. So how do we be together and do that? But I remember the second night. I remember her coming in. Most of us were already in the room and we were kind of chatting, some out of nervousness. She came in and she sat right down. She looked straight at the floor. And her hands were like this on the chair. And I could see that they were quivering. And the person that was supposed to lead that night kind of called the meeting to order and said, you know, is there anyone that has something to share? And she came to life. She scooted forward in her chair, and she goes, I just have to say this. Is that okay? And everyone in the group said, sure. Took a deep breath. Tears are running down her face now. And she says, I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to say it. I don't know why I'm in seminary, because I don't believe there's a God. No air in the room. Frozen. People are shuffling their feet nervously. Those seconds tick by like years. You know the feeling, right? Awkward. And people realize, oh, Mark's a pastor, so they're all looking at me. Like, fix her. Fix her. Come on, pastor. You know, and I, I, I knew enough that there's no way I'm going to fix her. I don't know how to fix her. So we all sat there and remembered, oh, yeah, one of the ground rules is just hold the anxiety. Because God's holding you. Oh, yeah. So we all took deep breaths. We all waited. She's got tears flowing down to the floor. And someone very wisely asked the question, is that enough? Or do you want to say more? Now with her lip quivering, she took another brave breath and said, yeah, I, I do. And she told us how about how she had lost her dad and then two weeks later she lost her brother. And she tried to go to church because, after all, don't you go there when things like this happen? And isn't there a God there who knows these things happen, who could explain why these things happen, who could help you through these things that have happened? But every time she went to church, people didn't help. Instead, they would tell her, you got to get over this. you got to move past it. They'd open the Bible and they'd tell her verses, but no one sat with her and listened to her. She ached. And this group, in an amazing picture of true Christian koinonia of fellowship, sat with her. And people, it was like the sun stood still. 30 minutes transpired, it seemed like 30 days in a room together, in a good way. And ever so gently, people started to ask questions that illuminated. And 30 minutes later, I kid you not, this same woman is jumping up and down going, I see God, I see God, I see God. And tears are flowing. And everyone's, there's not a dry eye in the room. How could you? She was just looking for someone who would please sit with her and help her make sense in this kind of way. What happened? What does it mean? What do you have questions about? Well, now you can act out of that. But no one took time to say, 
What happened? My God, how, how did you make sense of that? When you're a young person and you lose the two most formative men in your life, your dad and your big brother, in a two-week span of time, don't you think that will rock your image of God? Talk to me, don't you? Is that not realistic? And in that moment, what we need is we need someone who will sit down and help us do good work to think through, what is it? What is it that's going on? And to help us to think about what does it mean? And what are the questions I have? And oftentimes these things happen in ways and in places where you're bumping up against the box and it's so hard for us on our own to find our way through. My first real full-time ministry job is at a church that I still have involvement with, a great church in many respects. And after nine years there, I, I don't know why things exploded the way they did. There was so much misunderstanding. And when, when the misunderstanding was Apparently, I was going to be the next senior pastor. No one had told me that, and it, it just erupted in a really odd way. And then things went south from there. And it was an arduous three-year period of time where going to church did not feel like church. Being a part did not feel like being a part. And there were so many things that were going on in my soul. Thank God for Betsy. She was a rock in those years, and I was not. I was a mess. And one of the reasons I was such a mess was I had this embedded theology of you get what you deserve. And I didn't realize this. But all the problems, all the misunderstandings, all the situations that were going on, it was like, I guess I deserve that. I guess I'm just a bad person. Now, Does that sound like bad theology to you guys? It should. But if you read the book of Job, that's basically what Job's best friends say in very articulate ways, isn't it? You're getting what you deserve somewhere there, buddy. I guess you got to look a little bit deeper for sin. And I turn myself inside out, upside down. Not that I'm not a sinner. Not that I don't have areas to work on. But what God was after was not that. He was after that embedded belief that I get what I deserve. Because at the core of the gospel is, we don't. Can I get an amen, please? That is the gospel. You don't get what you deserve. I don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve eternal life. But I get it. I get it. And he wants us to truly get it. But in this moment, in this heat, in this confines of this pressure, I wasn't really getting it. And I remember having this quiet time. I don't know, sometimes my quiet times are not quiet. You know what I mean? Talk about loud lamenting. And so in order to do this, I would get up at night and I would drive around the city and I'd pray. And I was, I don't know if there were any cars next to me, but I'm sure they would have heard me. And I was just agonizing, groaning. And when I finally finished, 
It was that quiet moment. Do you have this? Where you feel like God carefully sneaks up to you. And he puts his hands on your shoulder and steadies you. And he leans forward and he whispers in your ear, I have something to tell you. You ever have those moments where you know, oh, oh, okay, I hope you don't smush me. And in the moment, God said, read Hebrews 12. So I pulled the car over, Hebrews 12. And as I'm reading Hebrews 12, I get to this passage. I wasn't planning on going in this direction, but here, here's what it hit me. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses their children. It says, My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Verse 7, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. When I read that on the side of the road, my Bible was shaken and the tears were rolling down there. And this is what God said very clearly in my heart. I love you, son, so I'm training you. Good deliberative theology happened in the car that night. The embedded theology got pulled like a sliver. And the anointed truth got inserted. But I wonder, for us, where's yours? I still have some. And will we be on this journey together in a way, you've seen this chart before, where we invite people deliberately into our lives and what's known becomes shared so that we can move to this place where faith and learning really happen. And we're protected from moving to a place where it's distressful, where, you know, you don't get weird, you don't get way out here. The reason we need biblical community is so that we can come together and we can be extracted out of that too tight of a box that feels comfortable, but it's a slow chokehold. And where people help you hear God and discern, yes, that's God, and draw you into that area of faith and keep you from drifting off into distress. Is that not, is that not what the New Testament church is called to do? Talk to me. Will we not, as a church, start to press in in that direction? I hear God inviting us to do that. Do you? So what I want to do this morning is just as we prepare for the offering is just to pray. I mean, this was just a message to get you to begin to think about how you think about God and how you invite others to help you think about God. And we're going to walk through other elements, but this was the starter. Hopefully it's got you thinking. Would you pray with me? Lord, all those people, they had heard what those prophets had said, and they'd missed Isaiah 7. We're fortunate enough that you explained your scriptures to the apostles, 
And we're in a place where we're enlightened. We're able to see it. Thank you for that. Lord, I suspect there's more places you want to illumine in our lives. Help us to have the courage to risk that. Help us as moms and dads and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and neighbors and all of those. Help us help one another to do that. And so as we get ready to give our offering financially, I pray that we'd also give our heart in a fresh way and invite you, the master teacher, the one who comes revealing himself, to in this season open up our eyes and understanding in new and powerful ways. Come, Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, in Jesus' name, amen.